Sarah Spreming, and this is Cop Dog Radio, a place where I will share my stories, cases, and considerations when it comes to all things dog sports and dog training. I hope you enjoy it. Today I'm here with Dr. Leslie Ide. Leslie is a veterinarian who's been practicing exclusively in the field of rehabilitation and sports medicine for the past five years. She's currently pursuing board certification. Leslie, will you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in sports medicine? Well, it's a long and multifactorial story, um, but it all seemed to come together somehow. Um, I started in dog agility about 15 years ago, but before that, um, I was a swimmer, um, on the national level and, um, was coming to the end of my career and decided I wanted to get a dog and I knew I was going to do dog agility. And then that kind of took me to vet school, but really I just wanted to do behavior medicine um and after vet school I realized that wasn't really going to work out and two things happened um one I worked for a really great surgeon during my internship who recognize that the field of um, especially canine rehabilitation and sports medicine was up and coming Um, and he thought that that would be a really good avenue for me to pursue Um, and two um, while I was competing in agility and um, going to practices and stuff you know many people would come up to me knowing I was a veterinarian and complain about some issue the dogs were having physically and kind of expect me to be able to figure it out and I knew from vet school you know we really weren't taught how to do that or given the the tools to to be able to find um the little injuries uh that these dogs have and there wasn't really the the background of of treating them like athletes Uh, When I went to vet school, you know, if you talked about a canine athlete, you were either talking about a greyhound or a sled dog. So I recognized pretty early on that I thought there was definitely something missing uh, um, to a a group of people. Um, And um, I wanted to know more about it. And it would combine both my love of behavior and um, athleticism and, um, sports. That's really interesting. And what I find really interesting about that is like you said, when you were in vet school, if they were talking about a canine athlete, they were talking about a greyhound or a sled dog. And that wasn't that long ago. You graduated in 06. Yeah. Right. So So really, really not that long ago that nobody was really talking about agility dogs as canine athletes and how do you feel do you feel like that has changed or do you still feel like uh sports medicine is pretty new to most veterinarians i think it's still really new i think it's in the process of training 
or changing, um, you know, it, it always takes a while, you know, when you start with kind of a grassroots thing, which I, I really think rehabilitation and sports medicine for canines is, it wasn't, it wasn't really started at the university level. Um, it kind of came from the owner level of owners of these dogs really pushing for veterinarians to be better at figuring out their dogs. And um, that pushed people to, to try and figure it out, try and become more knowledgeable. And from there, it's working its way into the university level and into the veterinary medicine education, but it's still not, um, you know, standard education at all the, the American and Canadian vet schools. Um, there's only a handful of veterinary schools that um, teach it and have regular um, clinicians that, that practice it at the university hospital. Um, so it's, it's amazing to me because being in this field and because I do agility, um, it, it just seems like everyone should know about it. Um, but I'm always shocked when I go out into the veterinary community and I talk to people and how many, um, regular veterinarians don't even realize that rehabilitation and sports medicine is now a specialized field just like um, surgery or internal medicine or oncology. And so one of the things, um, one of the questions that popped up when I put out a call for questions on Facebook had to do with how to find a professional. So a lot of people were kind of saying they had they didn't have any professionals in their area that could help them or weren't sure how to find one. Do you have any tips on that? Well, one of the things I would say um, is definitely go to your regular vet first and talk to them about it. Um, they're going to be the first person who can help guide you through finding someone. Um, the other thing is maybe there is someone in your area that just is new or doesn't have their name out yet and they're going to appreciate the fact that you've already gone to your regular vet first um, and started the workup process. Um, there are a couple sources online that you can search for a therapist. Um, currently, there are two um, certification uh, organizations um, for veterinarians and technicians and physical therapists. Um, one is called Canine Rehab Institute and the other is Northeast Seminars, which is often um, just called the University of Tennessee program. And both of those websites have find a therapist links where you can go in and put what state you're in and they will list um, all the therapists that they know of in that state. Now, one of the big things to recognize is that even if no one is on that list, um, that doesn't mean there's not anyone in your area. Um, it could be that they just did not register with that website or give that organization their information um, to, to find. Um, the other resource is um, 
the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation um, and going to their website and trying to um, find a therapist. And actually, I just thought of a fourth one, um, American Association of Rehabilitation Veterinarians um, also has a website that um, you can find a therapist. So you can do your own homework um, and try and find someone. But like I said, even if you do find someone on one of those websites or you've heard of someone in your area, I would still recommend going to your regular vet first to start the workup um, and, and basically ask them for a referral. And even if they don't know of this person, um, it's a great way to educate your regular vet about rehabilitation and sports medicine. And I think one of the questions that popped up was people are kind of wondering what to do if there isn't anybody local to them. And I think, you know, I, I certainly know plenty of people who have traveled um, kind of as far as they needed to travel to see the right professional for their dog. Is that pretty much what you would recommend? I mean, traveling definitely might play a factor. You know, it's just kind of the way of the world right now um you've the closer you are to a big city the more um possible people you could you could find um if you're you know more further away from the big cities it's going to be harder to find the professional um the other thing to realize is you know just because someone is not rehab certified. They don't have those, you know, initials behind their name, CCRT or CCRP. That doesn't mean they didn't go through the course and at least have some, have gotten some education on it. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of steps to go through to get those letters. And sometimes people just don't finish it there's you know it's a hard process and you know sometimes they have to travel to be able to finish it so again don't just assume because they don't have the certification that they don't know what they're doing um, talk to your regular vet about it I think the next step um, you're probably going to be more likely to find um, a board certified surgeon um, that might be the next step to go to um, and a lot of a lot of the surgeons have done continuing education on rehab and sports medicine. It has become an important role um, in their uh, job as well. So I wouldn't completely cross them off the list of possibilities of finding someone that that knows what what they're doing or how to help. Um, you know, I think just because, like I said, they're not, they don't have the letters behind their name doesn't mean they won't be able to help you. Um, and like I said, it's, you know, it's becoming part of the curriculum in the universities. So a lot of the new graduates um, from veterinary school have taken courses um, through their regular veterinary education on rehabilitation and sports medicine. And shifting gears a tiny bit, um, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast or responded to my shout out for questions on Facebook were really interested in not so much um, 
injury rehabilitation, but actual just routine care for our canine athletes. And I think that's a question that you hear a lot too. People are getting more and more interested in conditioning programs, supplements, and you know, just kind of understanding what we can do on a day-to-day basis for our agility dogs. So can you talk about that stuff a little bit? Yeah, so first of all, I still think it's really important, again, to go to your regular vet um, for your annual exam. Just like we would go to our doctor, um, they're going to look at a wider scope of things um, and make sure your dog is healthy. Um, as for, you know, sports medicine, uh, I, I would love to have um, canine athletes get routine sports physicals from their sports medicine veterinarian um, either every six months to a year you know maybe if they're they're younger once a year is sufficient but as they're getting older you know maybe every six months you know the difference with that um, versus you know just your annual exam is you should get a lot more in-depth exam of the muscles and the joints and really looking for any early signs of changes. Um, maybe something that's not super obvious. You know, when you go to your, your regular vet, a lot of times they're just going to look at things that you point out. Like, oh, I've seen fluffy limp. Then they're going to check it out. Um, versus your sports physical, you know, everything will be checked um, routinely. Um, and, and also... You know, the more a professional gets to know the dog, the more they may be able to catch something early um, that maybe hasn't even produced a limp yet. And you can kind of more proactively work on that. Um, I, you know, massage is good. Um, It's kind of... Um, one of those things where I don't think there's like a set, um, you know, oh, you need to have this done every so often. Um, well, we really don't know, right? Like you're trying to go off of a, trying to be a research-based professional. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, and even in people, I, I don't think they've necessarily done like anything that says, okay, well... If you get X every, you know, X number of weeks, that's going to better prepare you. You know, I think we definitely look at how our body is feeling. And if, you know, we're feeling more sore, we might go to the massage therapist a little more often. Um, Or if we have a big event coming up, we might, you know, check in with them a little earlier. Um, I definitely think post-event massages and body work uh, can be, you know, very good. But is it necessary? I don't know. Um, It's, you know. Hard to say. Hard to say. Maybe it's a watch your dog and observe changes. And I mean, I'm always saying that with behavior, just observe and respond accordingly. I mean, I think, yeah, you can get to know your dog and you can do things after, um, 
you know, workouts or competitions that if you start to feel changes that then you go to your, uh, rehab vet and get them checked out. You know, um, definitely some dogs are not going to like being massaged or manipulated necessarily. So, um, but they're okay with their owner, um, feeling them and stretching them and doing that. And, and if you suddenly notice that, you know, Fluffy doesn't stretch quite as much as she did, that might be a reason to go get it checked out. And lots of questions about supplements. Do you have a, a, you know, not naming any brands, but just a blanket recommendation for people? Because there were so many questions about specific supplements, and we're not going to get into that here. But just, is there one thing that probably everybody should be giving? Or no? Um... If I go on the research, I think the only thing that has been shown um, really is some kind of um, omega-6, omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. Um, The biggest thing with most supplements, if you're going with a reputable brand, um, is it probably does no harm but what kind of good it does is an unknown um mostly it's i would say a feel-good moment between you and your pet of i'm giving them (laughs) this special yummy treat and they love me because of it and i'm making them healthier um you know they're there is research out there um, on supplements, but all of it, I would say, and I don't mean to make like a blanket statement of like all of it, but you really have to look at it with a a little bit of a grain of salt, because if it is still a supplement, that means it hasn't probably proven efficacious or safe. Um, so that's something to always keep in mind with um, any kind of supplement. The other thing to remember is that a lot of times when supplements are said to have research behind them, it's not that the specific product has been researched, is that one of the ingredients or maybe even multiple of the ingredients do have research behind them. But it's never been studied in that form. So you also have to, um, you know, consider things like bioavailability. Is the dog actually absorbing the nutrient that you're trying to give them with this supplement? Um, You know, that being said, I definitely um, will um, recommend certain supplements to my patients. But I always... Um, try to explain fully the expectations for giving the the supplement. And one of the questions that kept popping up in the Facebook shout out was, you know, what are the most common injuries? Some people were asking about what equipment causes the most common injuries. And some people were just generally asking, what are the injuries we should be watching for? Everybody wants to know, 
What's the most likely bad thing that's going to happen and how can they avoid it if they're doing dog agility? And I realize there are not real answers to this question, so yeah. I'm setting um. you up. But I want you to talk about it because it is the question that everybody has. Yeah. So I think um, one thing that's important to remember first is anytime you're going to partake in a sport, whether it's dog agility or it's, you know, swimming or running there's always the risk of injury um and i think a lot of times maybe it's more important to you know think about appropriate training for what you're doing rather than just you know how do i avoid injury um you know we spend so much time kind of panicking over that that we forget about why we want to do this sport um so that's that's the first thing that's really important you know I always tell my clients who come and see me I'm never going to tell you to bubble wrap your dog and stick it in the corner because that's just not good quality of life that's not fun for them it's not fun for you and that's about the only way you're going to prevent injury um, is basically not letting the dog do anything. Um, so to kind of really generalize that question um, into a really basic answer, I would say if you're going to compete in a sport with your dog, keep your dog fit. I think the most common cause of an injury is that the dog is overweight and out of shape and being pushed to do more than it should be pushed to do. That being said, to answer the question, what was it, the most common? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go out because just pure numbers, I'm still going to say the most common injury is going to be a cruciate tear. It's mm-hmm. the most common injury in the general population of dogs. Um, and so I think that's just going to carry over. I don't think it's necessarily that agility dogs, it happens more often. I think it's just, you know, a comparison of population numbers that that's... Um, that's the most common injury in dogs, and so it'll still be the most common injury in any sport. The other part, so I know there's a part about equipment. I don't think we can say that. Again, just most of the time you have no idea. If an injury happens to your dog, you have no idea when it happens. Very few instances where like, it's such an acute traumatic moment where the dog just stops and is like, okay, I got, I just got hurt. Like, we know a dog that got its foot stuck in a jump wing. And it was hugely traumatic. The, you know, jump wing falls down. The foot is stuck in the wing. And so they believe that that's when it occurred. But yeah. the dog didn't even start screaming until 
like a couple obstacles. A few obstacles later. later. Right. So um yeah, you know, if there's an incident where like the dog falls off the dog walk and suddenly is limping, yeah, okay, so that's where the injury occurred. But more commonly you get through the course, you put the dog up, and then the dog comes out limping, you know, and yeah. you have no idea what actually caused it. So again, if we just look at pure numbers, I'm gonna have to say the most common obstacle to cause an injury is jumps because that's the most common obstacle out there. <laughs> There's way more jumps than anything else. Um, so, I, you know, it, it's kind of uh, being, um, you know, making light of it, but that's, that's really... So should we have a petition to get rid of jumps? I mean, I will say, <laughs> I hate to say it, guys, but I, I was recently on, on a journal club uh, call, and while there were not very many veterinarians on it, it was kind of going down the direction of maybe we should just get rid of jumps. <laughs> so... Oh, no, um, I was kidding. Yeah, I was... I, I, kind I of mean, like, and I have to say, I'm, I'm you know, happy. Don't understand the I <laughs> was happy that they got rid of the shoot, but that more had to do with the fact that I, that course design surrounding the shoot is often poor and not so much about the shoot itself. And also, I didn't want to buy one to yeah. teach it to Felix. Yeah. And then I didn't have to. Um, all right. So let's move on from that. Um, well, I guess. I guess I could quick because I think there was another. Yeah, that re- was like such it. a multi-part it really question. Was. Um, common. It's basically how do, how do they avoid injuries. them? What's the most common stuff and how well, do we avoid it? I mean, here's the thing. Keep keep your dog fit. Um, keep them what is an fit? appropriate Can you give like a, a little baseline on um, what that means? I mean, it's going to be different for, you know, what you're doing with your dog. You know, I guess I would say fit for your sport. So, you know, if you're looking at, you know, uh, some kind of long distance like caney cross or um, sled sled dogs, you know, you need a much better aerobic base, endurance. You know, you shouldn't just, you know, take your dog for a one-mile walk every day and then go, you know, sled pulling like they're not appropriately prepared for that um versus you know agility or fly ball are much more sprinting sports it's a little bit more about strength and flexibility and having um some good anaerobic conditioning so it's just like um with people, you know, try and avoid the weekend warrior syndrome where, you know, you don't really do anything, any type of exercise all week, and then you go out and you try and, you know, hike for 10 miles or something. Your 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 chance of injury is high. Or do high. a three-day agility trial with yeah, nine runs. Yeah, do a three-day agility trial. Your chance of injury is higher. You're, you're definitely going to get muscle soreness. Um, but then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you, you need to avoid overtraining, um, because we know, um, pushing when we are training for sport, um, going past fatigue and pushing into exhaustion or overtraining and exhaustion that also sets us up for injury. So you can't really, you can overdo it. Um, as well. So you have to find the, a nice balance. Um, 
I would still, like I said, say the number one risk factor for um, injury is weight. And I think a lot of times we, uh, I guess, there's, you know, general population, I think more dogs are overweight and a lot of times we're like oh they're just a little thick or they have a lot of hair or um you know it's an english lab yeah i want them on (laughs) i want them on the skinny side so you know i want them i i want that person to walk up to you and say oh did you just rescue fluffy because it's so thin that they think there's no way that this dog could have been in a good home. Right. Um, you know, uh, that's that's what we're looking for. Um, and especially when we look at the impact on the dog's body, if they're carrying extra weight, it's exponentially more um, difficult on their body and their joints and their muscles. So to recap, you guys, the thing you can do to avoid injury is keep your dog lean. That's the biggest thing you can do. Um, And keep it appropriately fit for the sport that you're doing. So going down, I think something that kind of piggybacks on that question um, is that I had somebody ask, you know, is just having my dog be an active companion good enough? Is hiking... Um, swimming, etc., sufficient for sufficient conditioning for sports, or should we be doing more specific um, conditioning that's tailored for our sports? I think of that. Some of that depends on your expectations for the dog. You know, I think we also have to realize as these sports become more and more popular, there's different levels of competitiveness or, um, again, expectations of what you want to do with your dog. You know, if you're looking to just every once in a while go out and compete and have fun with your dog, then, then yes, perhaps just hiking and swimming and keeping them lean is enough. I think if you're, you are looking to be more um, of a top-notch competitor, you need to look more into specific fitness training for your sport. So um, to give an example, you know, as a swimmer, I would never have been told to just you know, go run around a field every day for 30 minutes and expect to do well in swimming. You know, I needed to do, um, you know, get in the pool and work on my stroke technique. And I needed to do, um, you know, practice to build up my uh, cardio, my aerobic and anaerobic cardio fitness. But then I also needed to go to the weight room and do specific strengthening exercises to build up the muscles that I use in swimming. Um, And then, you know, again, um, stretching and flexibility was also important because I had to have that balance. And so I think that's important to realize, um, you know, when we're just letting the dogs choose 
um, their exercise, it may not be exactly what we need for our sport. And so you may need to get more um, specific exercises in um, with your dog to, to improve your sports performance. So, you know, if you're doing something like agility or fly ball, it's important to do some sprint work. I mean, those are, those are sprint, um, events. Um, and you know, it involves mostly jumping. Well, there's a lot of strength that goes into jumping. So it is important to work on some strength exercises as well. So I do think, um, you know, it is important to incorporate that, especially um, if your expectation is to, um, you know, really um, excel, you know, be, if, if you're really hardcore, you know, if you're just, like I said, kind of the, the everyday come what may type competitor, it may not be as important to do that. Um, and hardcore could indicate a more average speed dog that's maybe shooting for, let's say, the Invitational. So they're going to the they're going to trials every single weekend. It's not right. It's not just a world team. We're not talking about fast versus moderate right. speed here. We're right. talking about a mount that you more compete. How much are you? Yeah. How much? How much are you competing? Yeah. Look at you know how many runs are you doing a weekend? What's your volume? Um, you know, uh, and, and looking at it as, you know, a year plan, you know, I do think it's important just like with, with human, um, athletes that you take time off, that you have an off season. Um, you know, again, you look at the volume that you're doing, um, because if you are doing, you know, a lot of heavy competing and not taking care of the body in between and not keeping them fit, that is setting you up for more of a risk of injury. And I think this next question um, goes along with that pretty well. Everybody's always asking what's appropriate for puppies and young dogs. Um, What kind of exercise, what kind of conditioning I'm going to say what kind of training is appropriate for puppies and young dogs and define what you mean by puppy or young dog as you go. Um, so for me, puppy is, um, definition wise, I mean, kind of the big standard is growth plates and, you know, they're a puppy until the growth plates close. I think there's, a bit of an unknown, though, with, uh, you know, other, mm, maturing in other ways. You know, just because the growth plates are closed doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, they're fully developed muscular-wise. Um, you know, they still have... Uh, they're, they're still developing. So, you know, each, each dog is a bit of an individual. I can't really give you like a hard and fast age or number. Um, to me, puppies is about the dog getting to know their body. Um, so it's a lot of, 
body awareness and spatial awareness exercise. Um, and I, I do do a lot of shaping because that helps them, I think, think through the process and develop the uh, motor neural pathways um, better than, um, you know, other training methods to, to get them to do things. Um, you know, definitely as they get older, you can do more and more. I think the biggest thing to think about is impact on the body. So impact with the ground, you know, doing a lot of running, even if it is on grass or nice surface, maybe isn't the best thing for you know, a really young dog. Um, we talk a lot about when they're young, kind of letting them self-limit. So yes, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to restrict them from running or jumping or playing, um, but I'm going to keep a close eye on it, and I'm not going to necessarily encourage them to do more than they want. So you know, for example, like playing fetch. I mean, dogs. Most dogs aren't necessarily going to self self limit when you're when they're playing because it's fun. They want to keep doing it even past the point of exhaustion. Um, when I talk about like running around and playing, you know, it's more of okay. I'm gonna observe them while they're doing this, and when they decide they're done, when they lay down, I'm gonna honor that and say, okay, we're you've had enough. That's fine. It's also, you know, during training sessions, I'm going to purposefully keep them short um, and not push them to the point of exhaustion where they can't think straight and they're just, you know, offering behaviors randomly and wildly because that's not good for, for their body either. Um, you know, again, as they mentally and physically mature, I think you can start asking them to do more and more. But I'm not really going to get into necessarily a fitness routine until I know at least their growth plates are closed. And at that point, I'd probably start asking for more um, repetitions and actually setting out um, you know, a certain number of like, I'm, I'm going to do this X number of times, um, as a workout or as a training project. And as far as agility training goes, you would also wait to be doing much agility training at all until that time. Is that true? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm definitely one that I, I think there's plenty of time. To, to teach them um, agility. I'd rather them be physically mature before I start doing a lot of that. You know, there's lots of foundation things that you can do that are agility related um, when they're younger. You know, even if it's not specifically equipment, um, you can do stuff that um, will help you later on in agility. Um, Good answer. Um, all right, switching gears a tiny bit. Something that 
I've heard a lot of my friends complain about and something that came up multiple times in the Facebook shout out was the fact that people do tend to hear different things from different professionals when they're asking about an injury. So let's say they get their dog out of the crate, out of trial, the dog is lame, and they proceed to maybe take the dog to multiple different professionals, maybe even multiple rehab vets, and get different answers. What can people do to avoid a misdiagnosis? Um, you can say whatever you want. Well, <laughs> this is my podcast. Um, here's here's the thing. So you know, it is a new field. Um, we don't know all the answers yet. Um, and unfortunately, with dogs, unlike people, you know, we have to. Uh, we have the difficulty of them not being able to say, yes, it hurts right there. Or yes, it hurts when you do that. You know, we have to look for... Um, or it hurts first thing in the morning. Yeah. Or it hurts when I do this. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we have to look for responses for the dogs to give us, you know, when while we're manipulating them. And the thing is, um, just like people, you know, dogs are going to have different pain levels or, or levels of pain tolerance um and so some dogs you know it may be a tiny little thing but it, to them it's causing excruciating pain or it may be you know they could have major changes and and they're really they're like eh, it's not that bad um so that's the important one important thing to remember um the other thing is you know again going back to pain, you know, pain is one of those things where, um, you know, just because it hurts somewhere, we do get a reaction in a specific area, doesn't mean that that's actually the site of the injury. You know, you can, you can have referred pain and that can also make the diagnosis very tricky. Um, so I guess for me, my general take home for that question is, you know, don't, be afraid of pursuing diagnostics. I think the problem is if when we're depending on just our physical exam to come up with a diagnosis, we can be tricked. Um, it, it's not straightforward. There are not many tests or manipulations that we can do that are pathognomonic for a specific injury, meaning that if you do this and you get this result, it definitely means they have this injury. Um, you know, about the only one, and in, 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 it's not even necessarily foolproof as, you know, testing for a cruciate injury. Um, and as we're trying, you know, as we're catching things, subtle differences in performance um, and, and bringing that in to be checked out, it's going to get even more and more difficult. And you have to realize sometimes it can be just a minor injury that all it, all it really needs is a bit of rest and it is going to get better. Um, you know, that's okay. That's not wrong. 
Um, and that's often why you do hear when you go to the vet, you know, give them an NSAID and rest for two weeks because potentially that has worked. Potentially it is a, you know, a low grade sprain or strain and that's going to work for it. And you're not going to, you know, have to worry further about it. Um, but like I said, the other thing is don't, don't be afraid of diagnostics. So, um, you know, I definitely, I, I use my physical exam to try to pinpoint the, where the pain is coming from, where the problem is, but then I'm going to back up my physical exam by pursuing diagnostics, whether it be radiographs or ultrasound or even more advanced imaging like CT scans, MRIs, or um, um, arthroscopy. So, um, and I think that's part of potentially why we get different answers. Because I know, um, you know, veterinarians also sometimes become afraid to recommend those diagnostics because they've been burned in the past of, you know, saying, oh, we need to do X, Y, Z tests and, and people get upset that those are recommended and they're not just told this is what's wrong and, um, you know, here's what you do to fix it. And clients do tend to get upset with veterinarians when they spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars on diagnostics and it doesn't reveal anything yeah. also because they forget that that's important information yeah. too. And the thing is, you know, my field a lot of times, um, you know, even if I can pinpoint the pain to a certain area, um, yeah, I can come up, I can give you a treatment plan for it. And if that's the direction you want to go without knowing for sure what's wrong, okay, we'll do that. But I always set a time limit of, you know, all we can try this treatment for four weeks but then we're sitting down and going over it again because if it hasn't gotten better, then obviously we're not treating the right thing and we need to figure it out. And so, you know, that's that's something that, you know, you have to understand as well. If, if, you, if you're worried about pursuing diagnostics and really, you know, finding out what the definitive diagnosis is, then you also have to be okay with, you know, trying treatments that may not work. Um, because, I, you know, like I said, I can, I can give you a general treatment for pain in the area that we're finding it, but it may not be actually addressing the primary problem. And just for the record so that everybody understands... Um, I want to make sure that I'm clear on this. The only professional that can actually give you a, diagno a diagnosis is a veterinarian. Is that correct? Correct. Um, so just... Because our dogs see other people all the time, right? right. And lots of times, you know, like Iggy is seen by my amazing, amazing massage therapist. And she is a very, she's a great professional who would never make a diagnosis, but she can certainly tell me a lot about potential pain that she's seeing in my dog. And she does that a lot of the times um, that we go see her. 
but sometimes I hear from other competitors that their massage therapist said XYZ was wrong. Um, and I know, I know that that's not necessarily what the massage therapist said. And that maybe even if they did say that or they suggested it, the people, you still need to see a veterinarian to get a final diagnosis. Is that, that's correct? Yeah. So veterinarians really are the only ones that technically um, can diagnose and also develop a treatment plan. Um, now, uh, state to state, there can be differences. Um, some states will allow a um, certified physical therapist, so a, a physical therapist certified in treating dogs to develop a treatment plan. Um, but most states still won't let them actually diagnose. They have to either um, come with a diagnosis from the veterinarian or um, you know, have a referral from a veterinarian. Um, that being said, I, I mean, diagnose is a very, uh, has a very vague defi definition of, of what can be considered a diagnosis and what is not a diagnosis. So it's always, you know, a, a fine line because your massage therapist might say something like, oh, I felt some pain in um, the biceps area. And while one veterinarian might be like, oh, I love having that information that helps me better figure out what's going on, another veterinarian might take offense to it and be like, that's a diagnosis and they shouldn't be doing that. So you have to be careful, um, again, with those kind of things and um, necessarily... Um, Again, trusting someone that they they were really giving you a diagnosis or they were just kind of saying, I think this is the area of concern. Um, yeah, because I think that's usually what they're saying and people maybe take it as a diagnosis. Yeah. And I think the point that I just want to drive home is that only a veterinarian should be diagnosing and formulating a treatment plan for your dog and not one of the other professionals as wonderful as they may be um, for keeping our dogs on track. So one final question um, that I thought was a great question. Um, what is something that sport dog pet owners can do that would actually make your job as their rehab vet a little bit easier? Practice or... Um... Make sure your dog's okay being touched <laughs> everywhere and um, comfortable. And perhaps muzzle train them and, if they're or, not. Or muzzle train them <laughs> if they're not. Um, make them comfortable. Because while, you know, it, it's, again, nice to be able as people to be like, my shoulder hurts. You know, dogs don't walk in saying that. And oftentimes maybe the the sign that you're seeing is compensation from some other injury and so you know really i do need to be able to um you know check them all over and if they're upset about being touched or they're jumpy 
um, you know, they don't even have to be mean about it, but just if they, you know, flinch with every single touch, it's, right. it's very difficult for me they have to an exaggerated response to the, being touched. The changes, what are you supposed to do? Right. Because I am looking for sometimes just subtle changes in their demeanor, um, to tell me where the problem is. Um, the other thing is, you know, um, make sure um, they're food motivated. Um, that makes what I do a lot easier too because I do um, do a lot of watching how they move and how they transition between different positions. And if I can get them to move the way I want them by following a treat or for a treat, it's very helpful or being able to you know, um, move their body around, have them, you know, follow, um, food in a certain way that, that can help me figure out what's going on as well. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe just plan on bringing them in extra hungry too. Um, but you know, on the flip side, I don't want them going crazy over food because that can make things difficult too. So respectful of the food, but motivated by it. Um, and then the final thing that makes my job easier that I, I don't necessarily think a lot of people think about is um, it actually is helpful for me if you have visited your regular vet first or even an orthopedic veterinarian first. Um, because that does give me a lot of information. You know, I, again, dealing with animals, a lot of what we're doing besides trying to figure out where the pain is coming from is seeing how they respond to different treatments. So, you know, if you've gone to your vet and they've already done um, an NSAID in two weeks rest and the dog did not get any better at all, that gives me a lot of information. Versus if you haven't done that, I am probably going to still start with that and, you know, it's going to take another two weeks to kind of see how they, you know, what goes on. Um, I'm so glad that you just said that because I've talked, I talked to so many people who they just want to bypass the regular vet because they don't want to hear given an set and rest. And so if you guys understand that it's likely that your rehab vet is going to try that first too, because it is the most conservative you know, we never want to be doing well, a bunch one, of stuff to these dogs yeah, that doesn't need to be done. One is I want to know how they respond to an NSAID because yeah, that important. tells that tells me, okay, is there an inflammatory component or is there not? Um, you know, that, that gives me information in the diagnosing um, process. The other thing is, you know, oftentimes... Uh, your vet will find something or or can narrow down where the problem is a little more and potentially even get some radiographs to start and again that's beneficial to me because that i have that to look at ahead of time and see if i notice anything um that potentially could could be the issue um the other thing is sometimes with dogs some of the things that we're seeing in sports may not be musculoskeletal related. It could be an endocrine issue. And, you know, honestly, if you skip that step of, you know, going to your vet and maybe they, they figure that out and do blood work and you skip all that and you come to me, 
and I listen to what's going on and I'm like, you know, this really doesn't sound musculoskeletal. This sounds, you know, more something else. And I run blood work, you know, and find the problem. It's great. You know, we at least found the issue, but I'm then going to send you to someone else to treat it because that's not not my field of expertise to figure out how to treat it. And you really don't want me treating it because... I don't, That's I don't what you do. do that anymore. I don't see that that often. And so, um, you know, I'm, if you insist on me treating it, I'm in the back talking to, you know, one of the other doctors going, you know, how to, how do I get this done? Um, so it is, it is helpful. You know, they, a lot of times your regular vet can kind of, you know, get some of the, the baseline stuff done that then will help me, um, you know, be more precise and figure things out more in depth and be prepared ahead of time um, rather than just all all the information I have is, you know, front limb lameness. Um, I almost think of it as like a flow chart and the first step in the flow chart is always see your regular vet. Yeah. Because then, like, you've had cases where you saw a dog because the people assumed they had arthritis and the dog had cancer. You know, things like that where you've actually just prolonged this dog's suffering that much and prolonged them actually seeing the professional they need to see that much further by bypassing that general practice exam. And if your vet wants to do blood work and x-rays, do them. They can only help if they are, um, let's say they both look totally normal. Great. That's information too. It's never hurts to have baseline blood work. I, I think people, you know, when your vet wants to run blood work, just seriously, just do it. It never hurts anything. And if there's nothing wrong, wonderful. Cause you have a baseline to refer back to if anything changes. Um, but I think, yeah, thinking of it as a flow chart, and the rehab vet is never the first stop on the flow chart. I, you know, I, when you come see me, you're going to get a much longer appointment than with your regular vet, which is great. I get to spend more time with you. I get to spend more time with your dog trying to figure it out. But if I have to spend that time getting blood work and getting x-rays, then I'm actually not spending that time with my hands on your dog you know and having to do all these other things first so you know if i again the more information i have ahead of time um it it is really beneficial to the process the other thing i'm going to throw out there is um consider insurance Um, always i will say (laughs) you have an agility dog you got i will say it's always easier for me when i you know go and not all of them we, cover rehab right so be sure especially that, if you've got an agility dog that your provider does cover rehab yeah um it's always easier for me to say we need to do x y and z and the owner goes no problem because i have insurance and you know they don't have to you know can go home and consider you know finances and how they're gonna make this work um what i will say with that so rehab um with insurance it's specifically treatment um 
even if you came to me and we ran diagnostics just because I'm a rehab vet does not mean the insurance was would deny it. You know, you're still they still are you're still diagnostics. having diagnostics done by a veterinarian. So it's not that it, it, you can't see me. It's just that some of the insurance companies, unless you have a special rider, um, they don't cover rehab treatments. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to say on the topic of rehab and sports medicine? We covered a lot of bases. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's important to, um, you know, if you find someone, a, a rehab vet, you know, realize that they went through the certification because they have an interest in it. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to know about your sport or your specific issue. Um, you know, we're all have different passions and, you know, just like in, um, human medicine, you know, there's, you know, just because they're sports medicine doesn't necessarily mean they know all the sports in the world and every injury and everything. Um, so that's, you know, find someone, um, that you like and that, you can talk to and you know takes the time to listen and you know even if they don't know exactly what your sport is I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say you know they're not worth their salt because they don't know that you know um, help teach them about your sport um, realize I guess that uh, you know there is a difference in sports medicine and rehabilitation um, and a lot of vets definitely got into it or go into it for the rehabilitation aspect of you know getting dogs um, back to normal after surgery or um, you know uh, trauma not necessarily the sports medicine side of it so definitely interview your professionals and know, and or, you know, work with somebody who's interested in working with, I guess, the types of dogs that you've got. Thank you, Leslie. I think the dog people of the internet will appreciate all of this information. I've got a couple of little pieces of cognitive canine news for you guys. One is that um, Cog Dog Radio has a brand new Facebook page. Um, so all of the new episodes will be posted there and all of the happenings will be posted there from here forward. So just go on Facebook and search for Cog Dog Radio and like that page for more information. And we've also got a brand new newsletter. If you would like to subscribe to the newsletter, send an email to Cog Canine Info, C-O-G-K-9-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. You don't need to put anything in the email, just put newsletter in the subject line and we will go ahead and add your email to the list. The newsletter is only gonna come out once a month. It's gonna have um, information about my events and my upcoming classes, recent podcasts and blogs, and the occasional training tip. So I hope that you'll check it out and thanks for joining us.
Thank you for listening to CogDog Radio. If you've got questions or suggestions, you can shoot them over to CogDogRadio at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. See you next time.